I like to drink coffee, you'd rather have tea But we both like hot beverages and we take them very seriously So let's sit at the table and take some time to be Welcome to Different Together, a podcast that explores the spaces between different communities and imagines building new ones together. I'm Rebecca Farlow. I'm Justin Lee. And we're glad you're joining us today. We are very excited to welcome our first ever guest on this podcast. I uh, want to welcome, yay, Chris Furr, who is the Senior Minister at Covenant Christian Church where I also am privileged to serve as the co-director of music. So I have to be careful of what I say today. Because that's right, is technically that's right, be boss. nice. <laughs> <laughs> but Chris also has a new book coming out. It is called Straight White Male. So now you know everything you need to know about Chris. <laughs> <laughs> and it will be published this April uh, you can go ahead and find it for pre-order at Westminster John Knox or at Barnes & Noble or your favorite bookseller. But we wanted to have Chris on here today to talk some about uh, his book and just about the things that we always like to talk about here at Different Together. So Chris, yeah, you want to, what, what would you like to tell us about the book? Well, it's, uh, it's an opportunity, I think, or... or my hope for it is that it will be a, a space for um, people with a particular identity, which is, I guess, articulated in the title of the book, to sort of explore how to wear that identity in the world in a more just and more peaceable way. Obviously, you know, um, it highlights difference, it highlights the way that some aspects of our identity can create uh, certain perceptions that people may have of us, certain ways that we might uh, derive who we are from from particular aspects of ourselves that may or may not be all that important in a deep spiritual cosmic sense. Yeah, I mean, my hope is that it will allow people to to think about uh, think about that I- their identities in a particular way and how they relate to others. I love that idea because you know I haven't read the book yet, so I forgive me if I'm going down a rabbit trail that's not where you're going, but I'm, I'm making guesses about where you're going with the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it strikes me that one of the things that's really challenging in some of our cultural dialogue right now is that as we're recognizing that a lot of groups of people in our society have not been heard when they needed to be, have been oppressed, have been harmed, have been underrepresented, that one of the things that we haven't learned how to do very well is is figure out what kind of place we want to give in society to folks who are a part of groups that that have been represented or have been overrepresented other than to just say well your group has been represented too much and therefore you need to sit down and shut up and feel terrible about being part of this group that's done a lot of of damage in the world. There's this weird kind of conversation happening, I feel like, where people in 
groups that are, have have traditionally been overrepresented are saying, well, you know, it's not it's not my fault. I didn't, you, you know, I I wasn't a slaveholder. I wasn't personally oppressing women, you know, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And and other people are saying, yes, but you benefit from these mm-hmm. things that have happened, and you know, and it's not your group's time anymore. And we we end up in this very kind of oppositional framework again. And uh, the reality is, I think, and I'm curious to know what you think about this, we can't just say, well, let's just pretend that history doesn't exist. Let's just, you know, pretend we don't have identities because we, we do. And yet at the same time, I don't think it does any good to point fingers at people and say, you know, straight white men are are the cause of all the problems in the world. And so if you're a straight white man, you should just feel awful about yourself all the time. I mean, the question is, how do you how do you exist in the world in a way that's that's helpful? Yeah, you're, I you're right on. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I that's that's I would say one of the primary reasons or motivations that I had for writing the book, because there's a there are a lot of things out there that can outline what's wrong, you know, mm. and how the ways that straight white men have been harmful and ways that uh, defining straightness, defining whiteness, defining masculinity has been exclusive and oppressive to other people. Uh, there are a lot of things out there, but <clears throat> what, what, I, what I was looking for and I'm hoping to offer is a way to think redemptively about how to wear these identities in the world because like you said we inherit a history but we can't that we can't change Hmm. and so the question is what do we do with that now and what i was hearing what i was noticing was that among people who who wear these identities the same way i do there was you know there's they understand how to engage if they want to be responsive to to Black Lives Matter, to Me Too, or the conversation that that you referenced, where all of a sudden now this is the cultural current is for these voices that have been marginalized or silenced to, to have a platform and have a moment to express the harm that has that has come their way. You know, they pay attention to that. They, if you have a desire to engage that and honor that, then then you learn sort of the right ways the right things to say, the right things not to say, what posture to hold, what posture not to hold. But then behind closed doors, hmm. you know, they're looking around at each other. We're looking around at each other going, but what about us? Yes, there's a, there's a, an emphasis on uh, greater representation in different fields, for example. But what about my aspirations in that field? And how do I understand that? What do I do with that? I think my, like I said, you inherit a history and there's nothing we can do about that. You know, I can't, I can't go back and change 400 years of white supremacy as much as I would like to. I can't change the church's, especially uh, legacy of perpetuating anti-LGBTQ bias. But that doesn't mean I can, de- I can deny that reality. Even, even though I don't want to live with it, I can't deny that reality. I mean, in the same way that if you think about in a different sense, environmental issues or or climate change. I can't go back and change the the carbon emissions that we pumped into the air before I was born, but that doesn't mean that I get to live on a different planet that's not affected by, (laughs) you know, climate change because, you know, because I would think differently. 
I'm here. This is the reality. This is the the truth of what people deal with. And so there's a certain level of acceptance that you have to have that this is the climate of where things are. This is the space. This is the the space and time into which I was born. Hmm. Right. And my job is to to find a way to be me, you know, for me in in a way that's in keeping with my discipleship, you know, my, my faith, my, my belief in what it means to follow Jesus that honors this moment in time, realizing that I didn't write the chapters in front of me, you know? Hmm. Um, it's sort of like, <clears throat> the analogy I'll use a lot of times with people is like, somebody gives you a, a manuscript with 30 chapters already written. Well, what you write for chapter 31 is not just uh, a blank slate, is it? The story is already being told, right? So you have to figure out what it means to to continue that story in a in a faithful way or to maybe take it in a direction that you'd like to see it go. So but that's a struggle. That's a struggle. I know that you had co-authors for each of these sections. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to ask about how did you connect with them? Who were you looking for? How did that end up working out? Yeah, so I I knew from from the get-go that I didn't want to write a book about race, gender, and sexuality and have only my voice be part of the um, what's on the pages there. I knew that I needed people who could respond to what I'd written and could see things from a different perspective. What I was looking for were people who who had done uh, work on these issues, had written on these issues, who would not be afraid necessarily to challenge me. I was not, they didn't need to come in with their contribution and echo whatever I'd written. If there were things in what I'd written that they disagreed with or things that they thought were falling short, I wanted them to write that and I wanted to print it. Because I think one thing that straight white males can struggle with is correction. Dealing with hearing uh, critique or uh, challenge from someone and receiving that and realizing that you can live through the experience and uh you know it's not necessarily an indictment of your character that will go on, go down forever uh or whatever it's not emasculating it's not you know it's not all of those things that people sometimes we internalize when we hear somebody say well no that's you shouldn't have said that because and so i felt like i wanted the book to model that in some way and so that's that was one of the driving forces behind so there are four contributors. Reverend William, William Barber is one of them. Uh, he's the one that I had the, the of the four that I had the closest relationship with, and uh, he's co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, National Call for Moral Revival, pastor here in North Carolina. He's sort of church famous to people who who operate in Christian circles. But I was his intern as a as a seminarian back in 2004, and so that was before he was church famous and. He and I have, have maintained a relationship, and of course, he's a profound, he's a genius level. Well, actually, MacArthur Foundation said he is a genius, but he has a genius level theological insight, but also a deep personal experience as someone who has both African American and Native American ancestry. So he was a natural choice to be to respond to talk about race. Uh, Melissa Flora Bixler uh, is a pastor here in Raleigh, very, very bright and. Uh, intelligent reader of the Bible, theologian, 
Melissa was at Duke Divinity School uh, in the religion department at Duke around the same time I was. We knew it, I, we were acquaintances, I guess, that, through there, and we've gotten to know each other more. She's been a pastor here in Wake County, and our paths have crossed. But I thought a lot of what Melissa does as a writer, and so. And then the other two are Matthias Roberts, who writes on uh, sexuality, and then Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza, who writes on intersectionality as a trans Latinx scholar. But they're all really sharp people, and I'm just grateful. I mean, the, their contributions are obviously you know shorter than than what I wrote, but it packs a lot into what they had to say, and it makes it makes a big difference in in the final product. I think. Hmm. I love what you said just a minute ago about correction and and the challenge of being a a part of the majority and and receiving correction. And when I say majority, I'm I'm talking about people who have kind of cultural power and, and all of this. I don't want to just limit it to specifically straight white men, because I think there are different ways we can cut the pie when we look at society and and who has a say in things and who has less of a say perhaps and it strikes me that one of the things that's such a struggle when we talk about this kind of thing is that we are all multifaceted people and so when folks start having conversations of you know using words like privilege for instance mm-hmm. sometimes folks who are part of a a group that might be seen as having cultural power and historical influence and privilege may look at their own lives and say, yeah, but I I don't actually have that much privilege because da-da-da-da-da-da, you know? And so, you know, I I might say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a white man, but I'm gay in an evangelical space, and so I don't have as much influence in in the space where I live as you might think. Or somebody might say, "Well, you know, I'm a straight white male, but I'm I'm poor. I don't have the the kind of money to have influence in in ways that other people might have." And so, you know, I've heard people say things like, "Well, where's my privilege?" You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've had to to fight just to have the the means to survive my whole life. I don't feel very privileged. And I think there is something about the need to recognize that all of us, and I've talked about this before in other venues, that all of us, almost all of us have some kind of privilege, you know, whether it's being able-bodied or having education or you know, whatever. And the vast majority of us also have areas in which maybe we don't have the privilege that somebody else has. And so we can hold simultaneously, there are ways in which I feel underrepresented or feel like I am am not being heard or understood. And at the same time, there are ways in which I have influence or power or privilege that other people don't have, ways in which I may need to be able to accept correction, to be humble. Mm-hmm. I can hold both of those. I can say in my own life, as a gay guy in an evangelical space, I have had to fight my whole life just to, you know, and still feel like I don't belong often, you know, and and it's been a, a constant struggle. At the same time, I may still need to hear correction and have needed in my life to hear correction in terms of 
my views on say race and the way that I've approached race and the privilege that I've had as a white guy that like I didn't recognize growing up and I still have to be constantly listening to the voices of my friends who can say hey you know here's how what you just said came across to me and here's Mm -hmm. you know and that's one example right but like it's tough sometimes because we get stuck in our in our I hate to say victim mentality, but we get stuck in like mm-hmm. the places in which we we feel like we we don't have privilege and forget sometimes that that can be true at the same time that we're still needing mm-hmm. to hear from others. Right. Right. Like multiple things being true at the same time. So I have several thoughts about that. One is there's a lot of emotion tied up in accepting that word privilege. Ooh, mm-hmm. I mean, I. I it's one thing I have to check myself because obviously I've I've done a lot of work inside. It's ongoing, right? But I've done a lot of internal work. That, like me hearing that word and naming my own privilege doesn't bother me, but it does bother a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the reason, one of the reasons for that is that we have this very American ideal that that you work for what you have and that that opportunity, that there's this sort of justice to... Uh, the ones who get ahead or the ones who worked for it and the ones who uh, are at the bottom are at the bottom for a reason. We even have theological readings of Scripture that twist all kinds of messages uh, in Scripture to, to justify that. And so if you say that I have an advantage that I didn't earn, then there's something in me that that needs to be able to say that what I have, I have for good reasons. Hmm. Because if what I have is something that I didn't earn, then my conscience has to deal with that question about what, then what does that mean? Mm-hmm. If I possess something that was stolen, then what does that require of me? And so my brain in the background, whether I'm thinking about it consciously or not, is going to come up with all kinds of justifications for rejecting the idea that I have something I didn't earn. Because I don't want to deal with that a complication of of my life and so i think that's one part of it is it's dealing with the emotions that come with it because somewhere deep down we know that if we pull that string the whole sweater is going to come apart and we don't want to deal with that i mean the other piece of it is understanding uh what privilege means in the sense that to say that you have a certain kind of privilege doesn't mean that you haven't struggled just like you said. Hmm. Um, it just means that to say that you have white privilege doesn't mean that you haven't that you do have also economic privilege. It just means that whatever your struggle is, your race wasn't one of those things, right? That you had to to struggle with. And so acknowledging that there are certain privileges that I have as a white person that somebody else may have greater privilege than I did economically, you know, because I don't come from a wealthy family. Somebody might have had greater economic privilege than than I did, but that doesn't mean that. But there are certain things that that no matter what their economic privilege is, they're still wear their skin in a culture that prizes whiteness. So we also struggle with that notion of two things being true at the same time. You know, how do I how do I deal with these gray areas, right? Of 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 my life, and then last thing I'll say is just that I think there's a certain, I mean, it's, it's ego, right? This ego of not wanting to admit fault or to admit that I was wrong or 
embarrassment at you know saying something that was that was out of turn and we just we don't want to hear that we don't want to deal with that and that's it takes a lot i mean depending on how big your ego is uh, you know it takes a lot of it takes a lot of emotional intelligence i think to realize okay uh, what i'm hearing from this other person is really hard for me to hear i'm hurt that they're hurt and it hurts me to know that i hurt someone else and that's where one of the things i talk about in the book is particularly when it relates to whiteness is we have to let go of guilt because i think that's what i think that's what drives a lot of us when we hear correction from someone else we realize that there's the possibility that i'm going to feel guilty about something that i said and if i feel guilty about it then i feel bad but guilt can turn into a very self-centered emotion Right, because once I start to fixate on feeling guilty, then I'm, I'm fixating on how I feel rather than what the person is telling me about how I made them feel. Mm-hmm. And so we have, to, we have to find, again, that emotional maturity to be able to, I think, let go of some of that, to understand what's happening in my body as I hear this, what emotions are arising up in me, but then to realize that, my, that the biggest, the most important thing right now is to hear this other person's hurt and and that i think that's a very christian biblical other oriented posture to take but it's not easy because again those emotions rise up in us and they they grab us in ways that we sometimes can't let go of you know justin when you were talking a minute ago and then chris as well just now this reminds me of a conversation that justin and i have had i don't think on the podcast yet but about how people handle pain Mm. and how we tend to minimize our own pain or like, you know, Justin and I will call each other and say, how are you doing? And it's like, it's a pandemic. So we're not really doing that great. (laughs) So um, nobody's doing that good. Yeah. You know, but, but you know, to just be like, Oh yeah, it's good. Like Mm. rather than actually this happened and this happened and this happened this week. And those things were all really painful for me. Mm. which I try to do when in my close relationships, because I think it's important to both name the things that are painful and then ask for help and support. But we were talking about Justin, especially, do you want to say what you've said about like when we minimize pain or we always, or this is, and this is something that I know I do. I think a lot of people do. It's sort of like, well, you know, this is happening, but I know things mm. could be so much worse for X, mm. Y, or Z person. And Justin was, you know, we talked about that and you said that about if we do that, you know what, there's only one person in the world who's allowed to actually be in pain. Yeah, if mm. if if knowing that someone else, because people say that all the time, they say, mm-hmm. you know, oh, I mean, no, I'm, I'm fine. Other people have it worse. Yeah. And it's like, well, if, if someone else having it worse than you means that you're fine... <laughs> then that would mean only one person on the planet could ever be in pain at a time because there's right. all, you know, whoever has it the worst, you know. The, there's one person with the right to complain. Yeah. That's it. Mm. Yeah. And that's, that's of course, absurd. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And I just think we, it's a similar thing because it's like being able to talk about and understand and emote pain and painful mm-hmm. emotions and sadness or, or, you know, maybe it involves injustice, like whatever it is mm-hmm. that's going on. <clears throat> if we just try to like push it aside or pretend like it's not there, I mean, it's not going to go away. It's just going to hang around. And so I, I think 
like you were saying, a lot of a lot of this just has to do with a posture of and mm-hmm. Justin and I were talking about recently of like curiosity and openness mm-hmm. and I I think so much of this and has to do with building trust in relationships because I don't think people are going to change because someone they don't know says um, that thing you said was mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know but I think if you're in a relationship where you have trust then people have the opportunity to be like actually this is my experience you know and you can share right. back and forth and you can learn from each other and you know maybe there's correction that needs to happen I mean th- that's I, I think that's exactly it, Rebecca, that, that we, if we build our interactions with folks around relationships where, where we have relationships with people who are different from us, we seek out relationships with people we don't have relationships with, where we seek to build that trust and that listening and that empathy, that different togetherness, you know, what we do is create space where our focus is on understanding someone else's journey and and their pain and and not feeling like there's a competition for who has the most pain or you know who's struggled the most in in life we're simply we have that curiosity that you're talking about to, and and that's such a different approach from the one that our world often uses where it's oppositional, where it's, you know, who's going to win, who's going to come out on top in in this interaction, where we do then start to point fingers and say, well, whose fault is everything? And then let's, let's blame that person and then they need to feel guilty all the time. Or, and then they, they get defensive and then, you know, they shut it down and then they don't want to listen to maybe things that they do need correction on, things that they do need to be taking action on or changing themselves on. And it, it doesn't, it, I find in my own life, I guess one of the reasons that this subject kind of strikes an interesting chord with me is that I feel very much this dichotomy within my own self that, that I guess I've, I've been addressing already as I've been talking about this, where when I hear the title of a book like Straight White Male, my first thought is, well, that's those people. That's certainly, that's not me. That's those people who need to get their stuff together. Because, (laughs) boy, you know, like I, that is my Mm. instinct is to jump there because I'm not a straight white man, but I am a white man. Mm -hmm. And I, I think there is this really, uh, poisonous thing for those of us who are not straight white men to focus on or maybe this is just me but to focus on like well i'm i'm not a straight white man because i'm gay and uh rebecca's not a straight white man because she's not a man you know and 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 so both of us can kind of sit in judgment of the straight white men of the world and yet and we often do. We, <laughs> that's that's what our whole podcast oh, is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the well, I think. I mean, so I have a lot of thoughts about this, but that trust piece is really is really hard to create because you're right that if trust doesn't exist in a relationship, that it can't hold. You can't hold hard truths together. But that trust is really hard to build 
So I think one of the one of the things that straight white men have to uh, realize and also care about, which is the second thing I'll get to, is that there exists this barrier between us toward between full trust and full relationship that mm. is been created by all of this harm that has been done over centuries just by people with particular identities or been associated with particular identities. So for me as someone who believes in the redemptive power of community and the the great love that God has called us to have for each other, uh, I have to be discontent with those barriers existing and I have to do my part to to show myself trustworthy right even though that's not going to be mean perfection and so some of that comes from curiosity and I think that curiosity has to be driven by a desire for empathy right I want to I'm curious about your experience with the world because I want to know like what that experience feels like. And then, you know, we can be in deeper relationship with each other. But the problem that we run into is that that's not a very masculine posture to have in the way that we've, we've defined masculinity. Because for me to care about your feelings, right, is kind of a soft <clears throat> posture to take. And so you see right now, culturally, this backswing against that, you know, this, you know, forget your feelings, snowflakes, like, you know, mm-hmm. the fact that you feel this way is not something that I'm going to really care about. And it has, takes on this very aggressive tone. It's not biblical. It's not Christ-like because Jesus feels and he feels big feelings and he's moved. I mean, we hear over, I mean, he, he cries in front of everyone when his friend dies, you know, he, he gets angry. He uh, sees someone suffering and the Bible says literally his guts are stirred up with compassion. And so we see this uh, very empathetic Jesus, but somehow we've convinced ourselves that, that feeling big feelings is feminine, and if feminine's not the ideal, then, then I'm not going down that road. And so that's an obstacle, I think, because I think particularly men who are influenced by that kind of masculinity, they have to cross a certain bridge, right, to be curious enough to desire more greater empathy is going to mean being in touch with their feelings and being in touch with someone else's feelings. And we're, as men, not necessarily conditioned in this culture to be comfortable with that. And so, so it's a great leap, I think, for, for lots of people. I mean, I think one of the other things that, Justin, to what you were saying about, you know, sort of looking at the book and thinking, well, that's not for me because I don't check all three boxes. One of the things that I have been as a pastor, so it's taken me aback, I guess it's been so unexpected, is the power in hearing people of color or LGBTQ folks or or women come up to me and say, you don't understand how much it means to hear what you said come out of a mouth that's in a body like yours. And how much, you know, that... And I mean, to me, I'm not, I'm just saying what I believe. I'm saying what, what I think it's, it's, I don't deserve an award for that. It's just, just, uh, I'm just being me. I'm, to me, I'm saying actually what's obvious to me, but there's something redemptive in, in uh, hearing that, right? Hearing that from someone else to say, you know, who does bear, for example, straight privilege to say, well, I've done you harm and here's how I've done you harm. And I own that. And 
that that's how you build trust. I mean, that's how you build empathy is uh, by being transparent with people. And then maybe you can begin to trust one another when you see that I'm taking this seriously. I'm taking you seriously. I'm taking myself seriously. And then maybe we can have some more honest conversations. I'm willing. I want to know your feelings. I felt your feelings. If I can articulate something, if I can repeat back something that I've heard you say, right about or heard you know articulated about the lgbtq experience then that helps us trust each other right because i've seen you i've heard you right i was curious enough to understand how you feel you 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 made me laugh just now because you read my mind i was literally just about to ask (laughs) how do we build the trust because i was just sitting here thinking when you said a few minutes ago that that we need to build that trust. I I was thinking, you know, I think one of the challenges is, as, and this is sort of building on something that both of you have said, we don't always, even when we're having these conversations, we're not always being fully ourselves. We don't always feel mm-hmm. comfortable enough to be fully open. When I'm, I confess, when I'm around straight white men and this is I, this feels very <laughs> very self-revelatory to say you know I, I feel like i'm being more open than i'm used to being um i am used to putting on a certain mask and we all go through i mean i don't think there's a person on the planet who who doesn't wear a mask in our in our social interactions it's part of being a human being but for me the I have had decades of life to get used to showing a certain version of myself if I'm around straight men that I feel like will be more palatable and trying to to be less it's wrong to say less gay but less less scary or intimidating or different or or something I've I've been in situations with straight white men who are, I think, trying very hard to do and say the right things. And I am trying very hard to interact with them in, in, a, in a helpful way that makes them feel good about that and, and whatever. And I, and I realize as I reflect back on the situation that like, I, I'm not really, there's, there's not as much trust there as we're kind of pretending that there is and mm. and i and i feel like there are many times i've been guilty of being you know the gay friend who mm. lets somebody feel good about himself about you know how he's reaching out or whatever and i and i'm i'm not sure that anybody's at fault there i i'm not intentionally being less myself and he's trying very hard to do the right thing but i just recognize that it th- i have a history of being harmed by folks and feeling uncomfortable around folks that makes it difficult for me even when I want to trust somebody to fully trust him and I have heard from other friends that the same thing can be true in other situations if we're talking about racial difference if we're talking about sex difference if we're talking about gender identity you know whatever it's not as simple as just saying well I have this friend who's part of this group and and eh, we had a good conversation about it and so everything's great but i i really liked what you said as you were talking about this this ongoing 
journey to to have that vulnerability and build that that trust that we that we have to keep doing all of us well it's i mean it's the sin we inherit right mm-hmm. i mean this the sin of anti anti lgbtq bias that has you know existed for well for generations so the sin we inherit is again this barrier between us because in that room when this other person that you think you, you feel pretty sure they can you can trust they seem open-minded they seem like they're trying to do the right things but you don't know if that's performative or not mm. you know you don't know like whether they're actually what they really what work they've really done on the inside or or what and, and just and vice versa like you've been hurt enough times that you know that you can't go into a situation like that unprotected so to speak and so that barrier exists and i think the first thing that has to happen is seeing that barrier and realizing that it exists and then having the fact that it exists break your heart yeah because the fact that you go in that room and don't feel like you can be fully who you are not because being full of who you are is like in any way uh, objectively harmful to someone else because somebody could say well i'm just being who i am by telling a racist joke i mean that's that's not the part <laughs> of yourself that uh that you should be free to to share but the part of yourself that is not objectively harmful but is just representative of the image of god in you the fact that you feel like you have to obscure that should break our hearts hmm. open and then when your heart is broken open you know then you can find desire for something different and uh because we're we're missing something in each other we're losing something in each other as long as those barriers exist as long as when i'm in the room with a woman she has to be conscious of where the exit is hmm. then we we're losing something in our relationships with each other and that you know if we can't accept that that's a, a tragedy a great loss then you know we're not going to do the work of building that trust and i think the other part of it is it's just a long road i mean you don't i mean all of those things are ingrained in us and like and more and more we're finding scientifically actually they've changed our dna they've changed how our brain works this like generations of prejudice and fear and trauma have changed the way we interact with each other and so to think that it's gonna you know that we can build the kind of trust we want to have with each other overnight you know it's it's a long road it's a long arc but if you throw your hands up if our generation throws if our my, my children's generation sort of throws our hands up and say well we're never going to trust each other then we won't you know somebody has to lean in and and do some hard work of you're trying to struggle past it. There'll be moments of success and moments of failure. You know, it's just part of, again, the sin we inherit. You know, I don't want you to. I don't want you to feel uncomfortable around me, or feel like you have to be somebody different than who you are. But me telling you that doesn't create those circumstances, right? So we have to acknowledge that, and I have to accept that. But I'm going to have to earn that trust with you. And that that'll happen on your turn, your time, not mine. So, yeah, it's 
tough. And it seems to me that that means that in areas where, you know, for each of us, in areas where we have privilege, we have to maybe do the lion's share of the work to create that space where trust can exist, recognizing that there is this long history that has prevented it. But I also think in areas where we don't have that have that privilege or areas where we have felt like the oppressed person or the mm. harmed person when when those opportunities present themselves that also requires a, a leap i mean it's something that mm-hmm. if you if you do that hard work to create a space for me to to be able to trust you it is not as simple as my just saying okay well i trust you now but at the same time if i want to help heal that you know mm-hmm. that requires effort on my part too and i can't just say you know all of the the pressure is on you to to make it happen it requires Mm -hmm. vulnerability yeah Mm. right like and that's sacrificial um, because people don't always handle others vulnerability well mutual vulnerability Mm -hmm. reciprocal vulnerability is really important Mm that you can get to a place where there's like re- reciprocalness and everything I think is really important but yeah and that's where I mean I can only it's not for me to say I don't think like what that posture means for you right like you have to decide what's appropriate for you as someone who wears an identity that that has caused you harm for, you know because of simply for existing it's up to me to do my work right and this is like where i think a lot of a lot of folks get in trouble is they they want the other person to do the work right like this happens a lot in christian conversations around race and Mm. race relations like people want to go to a black church and have the black church explain to them you know the racial issues in their community and it's like, you know, you, I mean, and this is one of the things I say in the book is like, you can't make someone else's trauma your teacher. Hmm. You can't depend on them sharing their trauma in, a, in order to, to be so that it can be instructive to you. Especially when on a lot of these subjects, all you need is, uh, I think the line I say is like, you need, all you need is a library card and a Netflix account. Right, like if you if you if you just use those two things to to do a little digging on the experience of LGBTQ Americans or people in your community, you can learn a lot without having like to make Justin's woundedness be the thing that that instructs you, right? Um, and and and, so I, and can I just jump in and say and sure. also allow space? I think for people within that community to be individuals. I mean, I, you know, uh-huh. as a gay guy, I'm not going to feel... It's not unilateral. Yeah, not, not, every, not every opinion of every gay man in the world uh, is, is reflective of, of me. Not every movie about gay men, you know, feels like mm-hmm. it has anything to do with my life. Sure. But to know me, you, you would also have to get to know me on top of the work that you're yeah. talking about. Mm-hmm. Which I is guess part what of I mean the is work, I, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I just can't expect that you're going to take your particular experience and make that what I need to understand generally, you know, the experience of every, like you say, like every LGBTQ um, person. I mean, I think of like, I think people, 
who are in a position of privilege, if we can accept that word without getting too upset, we are graced all the time by people who are willing to share and help us see. I think of um, of Saul in, in Acts when you know, he struck blood on the road to Damascus. He's been oppressing people. He's, you know, torturing people, arresting people. And God comes to Ananias and asks him to go and help Saul. And Saul's like, Ananias is like, I don't want to go help him. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't, I don't want anything to do with him. And by right, Saul doesn't deserve that, right? He's been hurting people. He doesn't deserve necessarily someone to come in grace and to help him see, literally open his eyes. But that's what happens. And so I think for people, if you come from a particular place, I think you just have to look around and say, all right, if somebody's willing to share with me their experience to help me do the work that I need to do, then I need to recognize that as grace, as a gift that they have given me to trust me enough with that so that it can help me do the work that I need to do. But get straight that it's not an expectation, right? Like you don't, you don't, you don't owe me necessarily the vulnerability that it would take to put our the trust back together in our relationship i think it's just i mean to the degree that 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 then anybody who's been hurt to that degree is willing to do that work of of letting go right of so much hurt in the interest of trying to rebuild trust that is nothing but grace for those of us right who created the circumstances for that hurt in the first place so yeah, I mean, I you know, I try to just weigh in on the work that I think I need to do, and not have expectations around how somebody else manages their pain, mm-hmm. you know, because they may come to a place where they can trust me and they may not, but they don't owe me that. You see what I mean? Yeah, I think that's a great approach. We can all only affect our own, you know, our our, our own selves. We can't control how anybody else responds. We can only do our best to reach out with our own situation, whatever that may be. So um, I will just close us by saying, Chris, we so much appreciate your time uh, today. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. We hope that you'll come back again so we can chat more and I can put you on the spot about being uh, a man and how that's Mm. been so oppressive to me. (laughs) Just kidding. But yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us again. Chris's book is called Straight White Male. You can find it on Barnes and Noble on Westminster John Knox Press for pre-order. It will be out in April. So thanks for joining us. If you like what thanks you hear, please tell a friend.